listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that's true, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we're going to finish up this chapter this morning with a look at the last little paragraph and interaction that Jesus has with this crowd. As you're finding John chapter 8, if you're you're visiting with us for the first time, we are working our way through this gospel. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use one of the ones you can find in the rack and the chair in front of you. You can keep that Bible if you don't own one as our gift to you. But we're just working through the Gospel of John. We started out at the beginning of, oh, it's 2022. We actually started out at the beginning of last year, I think. And we're, it's taken us a bit. We're going to take a pause, actually, next week. As you have heard, we are having a marriage conference here with Herschel York, who is a pastor in Kentucky and a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he and his wife are going to be coming and doing a marriage conference for us Friday and Saturday, and then Pastor York will be preaching on Sunday morning, uh, not out of John, uh, just to stand, well, I hope not anyway, I guess I don't know, maybe he will, maybe uh, he'll correct some mistakes I've made, but we're going to pick up the following week in John chapter 9, which is one of my favorite, favorite stories in the whole gospel of John. On that note, as you're finding John 8, let me just also invite you to our Sunday night service tonight. We're going to be praying, singing, hearing from the Word. We're going to consider the immutability or the unchangeableness of God briefly tonight in the Scriptures. And I would love for us to come and pray together. We need to pray together. The fallen world hates Jesus. This fallen, sinful world has hated the Lord since the garden. It hates Jesus, his son. It hates his message and his true message, not just his ethical teaching, which sometimes it is, finds itself sort of agreeing with, but it hates the message of the true gospel that says that we are completely dependent on Jesus' righteousness to save us. And this fallen world hates the authority of Jesus. And what was this authority of Jesus exactly? It didn't come merely from his teaching or from his miracles. It comes from the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God. And that is what struck the hearts of these Jewish leaders that he was in conflict with in John chapter 8. And the answer to why they hated Jesus, because he is God, is at the very heart of this passage. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read verses 48 through 59. And then I want to I frame our outline this morning and give us a kind of flow of our time in this text. First, we're gonna look at some observations in the text. Secondly, we're gonna look at the doctrine of Christ that I think this text points us to, and then we're gonna look at why this is so important. So observations from the text, the doctrine of Christ that I think just comes out of this text that Jesus gives us himself, and then why 
This is so important. Let me pray and then I'll read. Lord, help us this morning. Lord, thank you that we can sing together. Thank you for the grace to gather and open our Bibles. And Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the Spirit of God that is at work in our hearts this morning. I pray that you would help us to see Jesus as Don prayed this morning during the call to worship, that we would see Jesus. That's our greatest need for believers and unbelievers alike. For my brothers and sisters in this room, make Jesus clearer and more beautiful. And for any friends that are in this room that don't know him, Lord, show him to them for the first time. Cause their blindness to become sight and their unbelief to become repentance and faith. I pray that you do this all for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. John 8, verse 48. So this is the end of a long conflict. Jesus has been telling them that he's the light of the world, that the truth will set them free. And remember, we looked at Jesus' church growth strategy last week when he told the crowd that initially believed in him that their father was the devil. And now it's the end of this conflict, and it's going to come to a head here in these last few verses of John chapter 8. So the Jews answered him, and this is again just after he has told them that their father is the devil because they did not believe in him. Jesus answered him, or the Jews, I'm sorry, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not 50, yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Okay, some observations from the text, quickly. And there's a good number of them, eight of them, I think, so we're going to move through them quickly that I want us to see. First observation is I just want you to notice the humility of Jesus. So they're calling him a Samaritan, which is a kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a total put down, it's a cut. They, they are telling the Son of God, the one who created them, that he has a demon, and notice in verse 50, he's saying, well, 49, he's saying, I just, I imagine the calmness of Jesus when somebody that you've created is calling you a demon. I do not have a demon. 
but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Look at then at verse 50. He says, and this is a, a stunning thing. Jesus says, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, meaning the father, and he is the judge. So just note the humility of Jesus. We read this morning in our call to worship from Colossians 1 about Jesus as the image of the invisible God, the one who created the earth. And here he is letting people tell him that he has a demon and is telling them that he doesn't seek his own glory. The one who is worthy of all glory is not seeking it. He's seeking to give glory to the Father, and the Father is seeking to give glory to the Son, and the Spirit is seeking to glorify the Father and the Son. Just note the humility of Jesus as he interacts with this crowd. And then, and then also think about how, how humble he is with us, how humble he is with us. Then secondly, notice, notice also there's this kind of beautiful diversity here in the beauty of Jesus. Note the humility, but then secondly, notice the authority of Jesus. So in one sense, in verse 50, he says, I don't seek my own glory, which is an incredibly humble thing for the creator of the universe to say. But then in verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. And so Jesus, in one sense, is basically being incredibly humble, but in the next sentence, he is obviously making a statement about his authority and his power. He's saying, if you keep my word, and this enraged the Jews, because he wasn't talking about Moses. He wasn't talking about the Old Testament. He is attributing his word as the word. In fact, he's basically saying that the law of the Old Testament, Moses, what you're hanging your hat on, Israel, is my word. It's a claim of divinity. Think about, just think about our culture. Think about how our culture likes to accept certain parts of the teaching of Jesus and likes to sort of cut out his authority. It's kind of like Thomas Jefferson, who was one of the great American presidents, was famous for the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Jefferson, I don't believe, was a Christian. He was a deist. He had a general kind of concept of God, but he famously took scissors and cut out parts of the Bible that he didn't like. And that, but don't do that, by the way. That's not, that's not a good practice of Bible study. But I think Thomas Jefferson really represents fallen man. Likes to pick and choose. Oh, Jesus, yeah, treat, love everybody like you, you know, like yourself. This golden rule. But we cut out the the obvious authority that Jesus has. You hear Hollywood stars and athletes who are living like the devil, partially quoting Jesus at award ceremonies. And everybody thinks, oh, well, they're a person of faith. No, they're not. They're, they're idolaters who want the teaching of Jesus without the authority of Jesus. And that's what's going on here. He is enraging these Jews. How could he say this? So just notice the authority. It's his word we must keep. And then notice in in the second part of verse 51, notice the promise of eternal life. He says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What is Jesus getting at here? First, I wanna wanna just, I wanna, in case you're maybe thinking, because we spend a lot of time going through Romans and the rest of the New Testament that talks about how we are saved not by our works. We're not saved by our obedience, but Jesus's. But here Jesus says that if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And what I think Jesus is referring to there when he says we will never see death is not that you won't physically die. I think we will, all of us will physically die unless we're living when Jesus returns. 
But what Jesus is saying is that the, the second death, the, the eternal separation from God forever, which is true death, those who obey Jesus and abide in his word will never taste that. But Jesus is saying here that that is, that is tied to us keeping his word. So is Jesus here preaching a kind of salvation by works? No. I think Jesus is just agreeing with what his brother James said in James chapter 2. Where James says that, that you, you, sh- you say you have faith in Jesus, but, but your faith, if it's real, if it's true saving faith, it must produce some measure of obedience to God. So what Jesus is really attacking here is a kind of nominal Christianity or a faith in name only. Just people saying, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but their life has no fruit that would, that would give any evidence of that. Jesus is saying that if we're truly following him, if our hearts truly have faith in him, there will be some measure of obedience in the Christian's life. And he has the authority to give eternal life. This enraged the Jews. So notice that promise. And then notice, notice number four, notice the anger at Jesus' authority. Notice what this does. Verses 52 and 53, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. We're sure of it. We're sure of it. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. This enraged them. Verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Then listen to the last part of verse 53. Who do you make yourself out to be? What a question to ask the Lord of all creation, the one who's walked on the water, who's fed the multitudes. You know, I wonder, I have these crazy little thoughts. I wonder, we don't know who these people were as individuals. We don't know if later on that some of them might have become true believers in Jesus. I'm just kind of an optimist, and I want to say that maybe some of them did. And then just think about being in heaven. Maybe you're one of the people that said to Jesus in this interaction, who do you think you are? Now, I know, I know there's no shame or regret in heaven. All that's gone. But I just kind of want to meet the guy who might have been in on this, who made it to heaven. Yeah, that was me, verse 53. I know, I know. I wish I had it back. Who do you think you are? This is what they're saying to Jesus. Friends, what can we make of this? Notice the anger that the world has, the fallen flesh has, at the authority of Jesus. The world loves his teaching about morality and treating one another well, but it hates his authority that says, we must obey him or we will taste death forever. And it produces anger in them. His authority produces anger in them. What's the application for us today? Friends, we should not be surprised because the world hated Jesus that it will hate us as well. This is what Peter says, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, friends, I agree that for Christians in a fallen culture, there is such a thing as righteous anger, and that is a good thing. We should have a kind of righteous anger when we see the name of our Lord Uh, 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 really defamed in our culture. But we must be careful about a kind of unrighteous, selfish anger. And I think, quite frankly, we're in a kind of cultural moment where some, some in the church are struggling with this. We just get so agitated by everything that, you know, politicians do. And, and yes, we should be concerned. 
But friends, we should not be surprised. We, we, we should not be surprised that the world hates Jesus because it has hated him from the beginning. Notice the, the anger that Jesus' authority brings to the world. And notice, five, notice the loving relationship of the Trinity. Verse 54, look at, look at what Jesus says. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So there's this beautiful mystery here about Jesus and his relationship with the Father. They're in this, this loving sacrificial, self-giving, self-promoting, other-glorifying relationship with one another. And Jesus is saying, it's the Father that glorifies me and the Son glorifies, the, the Father glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father and the Spirit glorifies the Son and the Father. And here's this beautiful thing to consider is that when we are saved, when God saves us, He invites us into this loving community of the Trinity, this relationship. And notice this wonderful world of love that God is in himself, three in one, this beautiful mystery. And you may say, well, that's hard to understand. Exactly. And that's what makes it wonderful to worship. And that's what makes him God and holy, inscrutable and above our thoughts. He is far above our ways. And we see this picture we get a little glimpse into the loving relationship of the Trinity. And by the way, every echo, every echo of relational love on earth is grounded in this relationship in the Trinity. And we just see it all around us, right? That's why we, we tear up when we see these, 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 uh, these commercials where a father's doing something sweet to a son. I'm a sucker for that stuff, man. I just, like Hallmark, I'm just, I just melt. The older I get, I melt. And what is that? That's an echo of this desire that we have to be loved and to love. And that's what salvation is. It's not a distant kind of cosmic transaction where our sins are merely forgiven and whoo, thank goodness we escaped the, the flames of hell. No, we're brought into this beautiful community called the Trinity and we're caught up in it and it's glorious and it's never ending and it's perfect and it has no end. And, and this, we see a glimpse of this here in verse 54. Notice, sixth, notice Jesus' obedience in his interaction here. He says, but you have, verse 55, you, but you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Now that might just, may just seem like a, a kind of end of the sentence there, just something sort of you know, important that Jesus is saying, but okay, Jesus keeps his word. What does that really mean? Friends, that, there's so much involved in Jesus' little statement there, I keep his word. Our salvation depends on Jesus' obedience. Where, where do I get that from? Well, I get it from Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter eight. Listen to Romans chapter eight. Starting in verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that one of the most glorious sentences in the Bible? So that means if you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Christ, if he's made you alive, if you are new in him, if your hope is in Christ, that no matter what you have done, 
And no matter what the rest of your life, all the trials and all the difficulties that you may face, there is not, not now and not ever, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means that you will stand before the Lord someday and you will not be condemned, but you will be brought into perfect perfect fellowship with God forever. You will finally and fully be free of sin, shame, and all of its consequences, and that is true for you if you are a Christian. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah, amen. But why is that the case? Why is that the case? Because of verse two. Why? Because for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So we were enslaved by the law of sin and death, but we've been set free by this plan of the Trinity, the Father, the Spirit of life, and the Son. They've set us free. Okay, praise God, hallelujah. We, are, we will not face condemnation because we've been set free. How were we set free? Follow Paul's logic again, verse three. For God did something to set you free. What has he done? For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In other words, this perfect, holy law of God was limited in its scope. It couldn't do something. It could show you sin, but it couldn't save you from your enslavement to sin. So what has God done? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So God has his perfect law and he sent Jesus who's lived a perfect life to bear the penalty for the law that enslaved us. That's what he's done. And what has happened in order that, verse four, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So Jesus' righteousness, his obedience to God's word is fulfilled, it's applied, it's given to us in salvation. That's how important Jesus' obedience is because Jesus lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death to absorb our punishment for our imperfect life. His righteousness becomes ours. Friends, that's, that's, that's better news than you're letting on, by the way. I don't know if you know that. Maybe you're just processing it right now. I get that. But that's really good news. That's really, that's, 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 why, that's, why, that's why the hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's what that song is saying. And everything depends on Jesus keeping the word, obeying God perfectly, because this is so stunning. His perfect righteousness becomes Ours in salvation and our dirty, filthy rags because, because, become his on the cross and he removes it as far as the east is from the west. All because the end of verse 55 is true because Jesus has kept his word. Praise God. Friends, that's the gospel. Friends, if you came in here not knowing, maybe you were just invited by a friend and maybe you've grown up in a kind of, a kind of uh, expression of religion that says, you know, be a good person, do your best, try hard, be a good Southern person who goes to church, and you have somehow unwittingly believed that that is what will commend you before a holy God, that will not. 
your only hope is the righteousness of Christ and trusting in him and trusting in what he has done, that Jesus was obedient to the Father as a real man and took your penalty for your sin and gave you his righteousness. You must believe that. You must believe that that's the only grounds that you have before a holy God is not your relative righteousness as a decent person. You are not, you are not a decent person. Maybe in comparison to some bozo down the street, but you're not going to be judged on a horizontal plane. We will be judged by the holiness of God. And our only hope in that moment is the righteousness of God, which is Jesus' obedience. Notice seventh, notice Abraham's hope. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. glad. I wish I could spend more time on this, but I'm just going to say this quickly. This is a beautiful kind of reminder that anybody that's in eternity with God, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, has come through Christ. Sometimes there creeps into churches a bad misunderstanding about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the relationship between ethnic Israel and Jews in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. And sometimes people think wrongly, uh, maybe with good intentions, but wrongly, that God has kind of two plans to save ethnic Israel by the law and it's not really working out, and now he's going to save the church through Christ, and he's, got to, you know, he's going to circle back around and reinstitute the law and temple sacrifices and stuff for the Jews, and you know, we'll wait for that in the end times, friends. That's not how it works. There's been one gospel from the beginning of time. It's the gospel of grace. And even Abraham here, in some mysterious way, even though he did not, obviously Jesus was not a man walking on earth. Jesus had not been made flesh yet. Abraham lived centuries before. Jesus is interpreting for us that Abraham's hope in the promise of God, God counts as Abraham looking forward to Jesus, to his day, he saw it and was glad. So the Old Testament fathers, the Old Testament patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and the others, when they were obeying God, they were looking at the shadow and they are looking at Christ, and they are saved by Christ. Abraham's hope is Christ. Any man's hope is Christ. Any woman's hope is Christ. And then finally, notice Jesus' self-description, verses 57 and following. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? What are you talking about? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And oh, that got them. That was the straw that broke the camel's back in their anger. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What did he say? He said, before Abraham was, I am. We read earlier this morning from Exodus chapter 3, where God the Father is showing himself. He's speaking to Moses. He's calling Moses. And did you notice the language at the end of that passage that Robert read? God revealed himself to Moses as I am. And here, Jesus is revealing himself to these Jews with the exact same expression. So that is what enraged the Jews. Jesus, unequivocally, unambiguously, is calling himself, he's claiming to be God when he says, I am.
So this leads us then to the all-important doctrine of Christ. Number two here, put kind of on our flow, our outline number two, the doctrine of Christ. What is this text about? This text, in addition to all of these things that we want to observe, this text which shows us this conflict with, with Christ and these religious leaders is meant to show us, to bring out to us this beautiful, clear doctrine of who Jesus is. Christians for years have wrestled with piecing this together and have come up with wonderful confessions of faith. So let me read to you the Westminster Confession of Faith and the London Baptist Confession of Faith. They're very similar, almost almost exactly the same except for a few points. And in this point, in chapter eight, speaking about who Christ is, they're exactly the same. Let me read to you what Christians some 600 years ago came up with as a kind of summary of what the Bible says about who Jesus is as the great I am. It says, the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is truly and eternally God. That's who Jesus is. He's not created. He's always been with the Father and the Spirit. He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance and equal with him. He made the world and sustains and governs everything he has made. We read that in Colossians chapter one earlier. When the fullness of time came, he took upon himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. So this truly God, eternal God becomes man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit came down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Thus, he was born of a woman from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham and David in fulfillment of the scriptures. Now listen to this last paragraph. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, meaning he was fully God and fully man, truly God, truly man, Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without converting one into the other or mixing them together to produce a different or blended nature. Now, you might pause there and say, well, how is that? How can that be? That, that seems unexplainable. Exactly. <laughs> if it were explainable then God could somehow be defined, which I think by definition would make him not really a God worthy of worship. He is inscrutable. He's wholly above us. And this last sentence, this person, meaning Jesus, is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. Now that statement is not inerrant, it's just a compilation of what Christians, I think faithful and historic Christians, have said about who Jesus is. And I think it's a right and good statement. And it comes from passages like the one that we just read this morning where Jesus is telling us who he is. I am. Friends, it is so important for us to understand who Jesus is. Mistakes have been made on this critical foundational truth, this biblical truth through the history of the church, and it has caused people to fall into damnable heresy. Some have tried to minimize the divinity of Jesus. Others have tried to minimize the humanity of Jesus. But we see this mysterious, 
joining together of these two natures in one person. Truly God, fully God, truly man, fully God. That's who Christ is. We conclude now with why, a few thoughts on why this is so important for us to know and believe, even as it remains a mystery to us. First, because Jesus is this God-man, he's the perfect and only mediator of our salvation. He's the only one that could accomplish. And you say, well, what, why, why is that? Well, let me read to you from 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's no other way to the Father but through the Son. No other way. Do you believe that, Christian? That Jesus is the only way? He's not just one of many? Some say, well, that's, that feels exclusive. That feels sort of unfair of God. Wait a minute now. Think about, think about the, the other option that much of the world, even some that would call themselves Christians, might believe that maybe, well, maybe other religions are good people that are kind of doing good things and maybe they misunderstand and maybe they just haven't heard and maybe, maybe if they're kind of good enough that God will somehow sort of, you know, grade on the curve, so to speak, and kind of let them in. Friends, there are lots of, lots of so-called Christians that believe that. Friends, that is, a, that, is a, that is an untenable truth. It, it makes the whole message of the gospel fall apart. Because if God could bring people to himself through some other way or maybe through just some sort of good intention of people that have never really understood it, friends, when, when what, what, what's the arbitrary cutoff line for those people who just, man, they just, man, they just, they tried hard, but, you know, they just didn't ever really get an adequate presentation of Jesus. No, the fact that there is only one way, and it's clear, is mercy from God. And why is it so important for us to, to, to know that Jesus, truly God and truly man, is the only way to sin? Because it gives us a picture, and we struggle with this as modern man, it gives us a picture of the, if I could say it this way, the sinfulness of sin. Because our sin uh, committed against a holy God is so egregious that it takes more than lambs and goats and bulls and birds to atone for. It takes God himself. That should tell us something about our sin. That it requires God himself to save us. So it tells us about the, the sinfulness of sin. And conversely, more gloriously, it tells us about the holiness of God. God is infinitely more holy and we are infinitely more sinful, sinful than we can even imagine. And the only way... The only way that the chasm can be traversed, the only way that the canyon can be bridged is through God himself taking our place. And so if Jesus is not fully God, he couldn't bear our sin. And if he's not fully man, he couldn't identify with us to a holy God. He is the one true mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Friends, if he's not both, two natures in one person, if he is not fully God and fully man, there is no bridging of the chasm of our sin between us and the holiness of God. 
Know that, friends. Rest in that. You don't have to understand that perfectly to believe it. We don't understand anything perfectly. Come on. We don't know. We don't know. We're groping around in the dark most of the time. You know what I'm talking about? You got phones and planes and all sorts of stuff. We, you, you, you heard my analogy. We get on planes and fly across the country like it's no big deal, and you have no idea how jet propulsion works. So get out of here. You get... I don't understand it. Oh, well, okay, so you're human? All right, great. Friends, we need to believe this. Secondly, and this kind of follows on, this is connected to, but it follows, Jesus' divinity, I want you to think with me now, Jesus' divinity should destroy our attempts at self-justification. Now, what do I mean by this? Jesus is, in, in some parables in Matthew, he's, he's beautiful kingdom parables. I think he refers to himself as the pearl of great price. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, I think off the top of my head, towards the end of the chapter, he's saying that we were bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. And so Jesus' glorious divinity, that it would take God's Son, God in the flesh, to satisfy the punishment for our sin should tell us something about how ridiculous it is after receiving that grace to try and all of a sudden keep ourselves or make ourselves feel better about ourselves through self-justification. Paul says this in Romans chapter 11, verses 35 and 36. I think he captures it well. He says, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? In other words, who, who in their own sort of meager righteousness somehow it gives it to, to God as if we can pay him back for our sin. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Here's a picture I want you to see that, to capture this idea that, that if we understand the gospel well, it should continually crush our, our sort of self-righteousness that always wants to pop back up and make us feel better about ourselves before a holy, righteous mediator, Jesus. Here, here's the picture I want to give you, and it's, it's the difference between Christianity and any other set of beliefs or religion in the world. I'm going I'm I'm to paint with a broad brush here, and I'm going to basically say that all the religions of the world are basically the same. Maybe they have different names and different nuances, but basically they're all the same. And it's this picture... That God is on this mountain, and we are at the bottom of the mountain. And basically every religion, set of beliefs of the world, except for biblical Christianity, the gospel says, man, you're at the bottom of the mountain, and you, through some measure of self-effort, you must work your way up the hill. You got you you know, you to do it, somehow. You got to do these you know, seven pillars of Islam. You got to do these self-actualization of, of, of Hindu. You got you to do it somehow. You got to obey the law. You got to do this. You got to, you have to ascend the hill. Whereas the gospel says, opposed to every other set of beliefs in the world, the exact opposite. It says, you're at the base of the mountain and you're dead and you cannot climb the hill. So Jesus comes down from the mountain. 
and he gets us. He rescues us from the base of the mountain and he takes us up with him. That's the difference between Christianity and any other set of beliefs. So then how, how, how ridiculous is it when Jesus comes down? We're like, a, we're like somebody who's rescued at the bottom of the mountain and we're being airlifted up to the top to salvation it's like halfway up, we want to stop and say, you know what, can you let me out? I want to, I want to hike a couple miles. <laughs> but don't we do that? Isn't that self-justification? Feel better about myself? Friends, what does this mean? It means we can rest. It means we can rest in Christ. We can rest in Christ. And the fact that Jesus, this is how wicked we were. We were... We couldn't save ourselves. We needed God. God came down to save us. The great I am came down to save us and he takes us up and he guarantees to bring us all the way home. And then thirdly, why is this so important? We end this with this is that Jesus' divinity, his lordship, his authority demands our obedience. You know, it's easy. I, 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 I confess, this is sometimes by default how I read the Bible. And I think it's because I'm a little brother. And I can remember I used to be a little smart aleck in high school. And um, my brother was kind of the big man on campus. And I could always kind of like saddle up next to my brother and say, oh, you, you, yeah. So it was always kind of us against them, but it was all his strength that was doing the us. You know what I mean? So I was just a little smart aleck. Yeah, well, I got my big brother. He's going to protect me. So I always kind of felt like I could kind of just sit on the bench and just sort of criticize everybody else out there. And, and I think that affects sometimes how I read the Bible. Because when I read... When I read John chapter 8, let me just admit to you, uh, it's wonderful to see all of you here, and after I admit this to you, you I may never see you again, but, but I sometimes sort of read the Bible kind of like, like a self-righteous punk. And so when I, I'm reading Jesus' interaction with these self-righteous people who are offended at his authority that he is telling them that they must obey his word. And you know what I sometimes instinctively think? I feel like I'm right next to Jesus and I'm saying, yeah, Jesus, you tell them. You tell them, Jesus. You, you tell them, yeah. As if Jesus isn't talking to me. <laughs> right? Yeah. You, you tell them, Jesus. Yeah, man, those people that don't understand things, like you tell, they need to obey God's word. Those people in that political party, they need to obey that, that word. Those people that believe that about this or that, they need to obey God's word. And we always, by default, assume the position of righteousness right next to Jesus. Friends, that's, that's not how we should read the Bible. Jesus says in verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That means the converse of that is true. If you don't keep his word, you will see death which is not ceasing to exist. It's eternal separation from him forever. And so, as I glory in the divinity of the son who came down from the mountain to rescue me, it's not just salvation that he came for. It is my glorification, my obedience, my sanctification that he has secured. So he hasn't just saved me to stand next to him and assume that I'm okay, but to obey him with my life, to fight sin with you, my brothers and sisters, who I need. Obedience, I'm just going to let you in on something. Obedience is hard. Can I get an amen? 
And we, <laughs> right? Okay, this section of the church is particularly sanctified. This, and we, don't, don't we need each other's help? Come on, man, don't we need each other's help? I need your help to obey Jesus. I need your help to fight sin. I need you. I need to be part of a church. I need the accountability of the elders. I need people to tell me when I'm, when I'm not seeing things rightly. I need places to repent. I need friends to confess to. I need, I need a community of people that I can be real with. And I need, I need, I need a lot of help following Jesus. And I think you do too. But Jesus' divinity, his authority demands that I fight for that, that I fight for something more than a doctrinal understanding of salvation, but that I fight for a life of striving for obedience with brothers and sisters like you. He is the great I am. Let's pray. Lord, uh, help, help us with this. Help me with this text. Help me to see my sin and hate it more. Help me to see your holiness and love it more. Crush my, crush my attempts to jump off the, jump off the helicopter of grace and climb a few miles myself. Lord, forgive me for that. And Lord, forgive me thinking everybody else needs to obey better instead of me. Your divinity, your authority, your great I am means not only are you the only one that can save me, but I must follow you. Lord, if anybody else in this room feels the same way or is praying that prayer, Lord, do you the work of your spirit. And my brothers and sisters, humble us and make Jesus more beautiful. And for my friends in this room that don't know you, Lord, if, if just by your grace, would you use anything that I've said with your holy, inerrant, infallible word that's like an arrow, would you pierce their heart with it, open their eyes so that they would see that their only hope is trusting in Jesus, that they don't need to do anything in the sense of them trying to self-improve or do better, but they need to turn away from themselves and trust in Jesus. Lord, would you give new hearts in this room so that people can do that. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.